Thanks for downloading the Charlie Higson and Friends podcast, which originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a station where we have fun with classical music. It's home to Penny Smith, Simon Mayo, Mark Kermode, and me, Charles Nove. And you can find us on DAB Digital Radio, scalaradio.co.uk, and on the Scala app. Right, over to you, Charlie. Hello and welcome to Charlie Higson and Friends. I am Charlie Higson and my friend today is uh, Armando Iannucci. Yes, you have you have my friendship for 24 hours. Oh, it's marvellous. Yeah. Uh, um, it's on loan. <laughs> and we, I mean, <laughs> our paths crossed quite a lot in the 90s. So we had very similar careers in that yeah. we were both comedy writers, performers, and, and crucially for me, Producers, yes. And that's, that for me, I that's... always remember being very intrigued about you because I thought, who is this other writer producer? Performer? Well, that was exactly you know. what I felt about you. I yeah. thought, you know, this is the guy doing what I like to do, mm. and and you know, inevitably, I always think, well, Amanda's better than me. No. <laughs> no, it's like make funny things. I think when people ask me what I do, I can't decide if is it writing, is it, and I just say I just like making funny things, which um, is a great job to have. Yeah, and I never see it as a job. <laughs> I remember when uh, uh, I think my my middle one, my middle one, they're all grown up now. Uh, but when Marcello was about eight, he said, "What do you do, Dad?" And I said, "I write jokes." He went, "That's not work. <laughs> you don't work." <laughs> I mean, yeah, but but at the same time, it was often quite hard work. <laughs> it was very hard work and stupid hours as well. Yes. And you wanted to get it right if you were. And also, mainly, you know, you know, you're also working with other people who have minds and mm. of their own, and, and, and don't always want to do what you tell them to do. No, no, no. <laughs> Every now and then, the idea of just an office life where you are the manager seems like a good idea. You know, you can just tell people what to do. But it's not like that in the uh, creative. I was going to say the creative industries, but that makes it sound like work again. The creative arts. It's not like that, is it? It's people just sort of looking like they're dossing around, but actually working in quite a focused way. Mm. And people always say to me, oh, it must have been such fun mm. making The Fast Show. And you yeah. think, yeah, there were moments that were fun, but mostly you remember trying to film something on location somewhere where you've run out of time, it's yes. raining, people haven't learnt their lines, <laughs> um, you <laughs> haven't got the right props for the sketch, yeah. and you're just tearing it is, I'd out. say, it is possibly the hardest and most dangerous job in the world, what we do. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And <laughs> but you still, I mean, you still do. I, I, I have slightly no, moved away from from yeah. the the comedy producing, mm-hmm. uh, well, in the comedy making world. Um, but you've per- persevered, and you did. You, you followed the route of, which was everybody's dream. Oh, let's go to America and, oh, right, and make yeah. proper shows. That was no. Just to kind of you know go back a little bit on what we were saying, it it, it has it is I found it mostly enjoyable. Otherwise, I would have stopped. Mm. And I think when a project is not fun, as well as um, something you can be proud of, then I think it's time to move on. Um, uh, so I've always I've enjoyed the hard work, if you see what I mean, when I feel it's going in the right direction. But if it's hard work and you just think, why are we doing this? Then mm. that's the point where you, you reconsider. But, you know, I, I've, I've, always, I've always felt an affinity with you because mm. I have always felt that you are someone who cares about the craft of it and that you want to make something as 
best as you possibly can. It's not just let's make some stuff because someone. No, wants and it. I've never, I've never had a production company because I've, it's I've always man. had this nightmare of feeling I hate this show, but uh, we've got to have another series, otherwise these sixty people will be out of a job, yes. and I'm going to have to be the one handing out the redundancy yeah. notices. I remember when um, Vic and Bob set up production company. Yeah. Within a year, they were making celebrity dog training school. Yes. Um, yeah. And you kind of think that's not why you no, went into that, TV. No, I didn't go into it. <laughs> so, much as it is fun to talk about our careers in mm. the hardest job in the world, this is a music station. Yeah. <laughs> so, we better play some music. Well, this would so, be easy then, wouldn't it? Working here must be easy. Away from the, the hard comedy. But yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, you probably couldn't tell, but I'm not really a professional radio <laughs> presenter. But uh, No, that came across. <laughs> you carry it well. Well, the idea, uh, I, you know, part of why I wanted to make this show was to make classical music feel more accessible, mm. that it's not yes. some kind of elitist thing. So, yeah. let, I mean, so let's start by playing one of the first pieces of music that you sort of loved as a child yes. and came across music and, and discovered that there was this thing that wasn't was pop music. There was this thing, yes. Because uh, I grew up uh, in a tenement flat in Glasgow sharing a room with my brother, my other brother as well. Was They were into Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and King Crimson and all the shades of red. Where really. did you fit in? Were you uh, in the middle? Or the... And I was the third. Right, so I was the youngest of three and then I had a, a younger sister. And I sort of felt... I, I want my noise. What's my noise? Mm. And I sort of... I remember thinking my old field was interesting, but I think the, the reason I felt my old field was interesting was he did big, long, slightly symphonic pieces, really. And then I remember first music appreciation class <laughs> at school. <laughs> the teacher put... You know, dropped the needle onto uh, Mars, the first of the planets, holds the planets. And I thought, that's my noise. It's the orchestra. So many people who who got into classical music, I think mm. the Planet Suite was a sort of gateway gateway music, wasn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, gateway. <laughs> because it sort of tells a story, because most classical yeah. music is, is, is abstract, essentially. It's just, it is. And you can take this either way, you know, you can take these pieces as abstract or, or not. I mean, you know, obviously Mars Bringer, well, there's very military sound to it, but it's just beautiful music as well. Jupiter and, you know, Saturn as this mysterious, very um, kind of mystical, weird, almost cinema cinematic music. You know, a lot of those composers, British composers of the 1930s and 40s, also, you know, earned their keep by writing film music. Yeah, and, and you know, so much film music has been influenced by the Planet Suite. Exactly, um, yeah. You know, yeah. Hans Zimmer's made a career of ripping off <laughs> Mars Bring of War. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I I think he's he's sort of added to it rather than ripped it off. He's, yeah, well, sorry, he's enhanced sorry, was, the experience. Was, was influenced by was say. influenced and yeah. paid tribute retrospectively. I to. have to be careful what I say. Yes, Hans Zimmer refuses to let any of his music be played on Scala Radio. Um, but I, I remember also roughly that time thinking, what is this? You know, I want to get more. And it, I was very lucky. We live in this tenement flat and. Byers Road in Glasgow, and then just down, two blocks down, they'd just opened the Hillhead Library, new public library. So it was all spanking new and had a magnificent classical music section, vinyl, which, you know, you, you could join and I could just explore this music for free. This will mean nothing to, to younger listeners. Not what, that I probably have any. What the words? The words vinyl. It's like what, or, you have to go to a special building to yes. get music. So the words library <laughs> and vinyl mean nothing yes. to this. I know it's 
it sounds crazy, but, mm. uh, but it, that's what it we did. It just made it special, didn't it? I know. This, these were the times, for our younger listeners, this was the time when also you had to stand up and walk across to the television to change channel. Mm. I mean, can you nightmare. imagine? Absolute nightmare. Although yeah. my kids don't hardly ever watch the TV anyway. Are they watching tiny little... And yes, yeah. But... Um, um, as a, as a complimentary piece to the the, the, the very martial music of um, Mars, the bringer of war, I listened to a lot when I was a kid. Because I think particularly as a boy, you like those loud, banging, mm-hmm. fast, noisy pieces. And there's a certain military air to um, Kachaturian's sabre dance. Mm-hmm. And I actually first came across that music, like a lot of people in my generation, the version, the rock version by mm-hmm. Love Sculpture, which was Dave Edmonds. I think at that time... Is this that we're talking about the 70s, late 70s, early 80s? There was a, early, early 70s, 70s for me. There was this kind of strange fusion of yes. prog rock and classical. Rick Wakeman doing that. Like, well, Rick Wakeman presented a series on Scala, which is still available, if you want to listen to it, on, of that crossover between yeah. rock music. I remember at music. the time on Radio Clyde, which was our local station, <laughs> on Sunday night there was Baroque and Roll, which was... <laughs> <laughs> which I, I tried to listen to, but it was... It, 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 it was always... By, by episode four, they were struggling to make the connection between the two. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. It's you probably know. a good short series or a one-off. Yeah, show. But I remember the Six Wives of Henry the yeah. by Rick Wakeman. Oh my lord! And, and things like that. And E.L. Yeah, yeah, not um, E.L. Emerson Pictures an exhibition. Yeah. So there was an element of that, but but in the end, I decided that's not good enough. You know, that's that's them trying to approach classical music, mm. and it's nice that they do. But actually, I want the real thing. And so you you carried on listening to classical yeah, music. Yeah, absolutely. It became, and and the great joy of having this library was that you know, of course, you can do it on st- st- streaming services now, but you could just explore. You could take a risk. Mm. You know, you could come across a composer that you never heard of, Sibelius. Who's this Sibelius? Lots of pictures of sort of Finnish kind of landscapes and so on. <laughs> What's that all about? And I didn't have to, you know, I could just borrow it, you know, mm. and listen to it. And if I really liked it, I could go back and listen to more Sibelius. Did you have to listen in your bedroom with your brothers? Well, yes. Did you so have that's, to fight that's, over access Well, to there the was a hi-fi. bit of that, yes. And so I listened with headphones on because, right. you know, we had to share a room. And I tend to do it with... Um, while doing homework, so I had I had a makeshift because it was quite cramped. I had a makeshift desk which was just a board over my chair, <laughs> and I would do my maths homework with um, the headphones on, listening to, you know, Sibelius's Third Symphony or or Mahler. I was a great Mahler fan um, because I, I managed to game the system at the library, which was you were allowed to take three discs out, but Mahler, his symphonies were so long they were double albums. Mm. So I was getting a kind of special fourth. Well, I disc. remember my my dad uh, came home from the from the music library. Yeah. With um, Siegfried. Oh wow. The Wagner op- opera. Yeah. Which was about ten LPs. Yes. Yes. So that that was great. And that's just one ticket. That's yeah. just one. So he's got more. To- <laughs> and then in the Govan Library, they actually they had an even bigger classical music section, and they had sh- and they had scores, so you could take scores. I I couldn't read music, but I tried taking you know taking out a score of a Beethoven symphony and and the disc. And and sort of following it at home was I found it quite exciting, but uh, I didn't have friends. No, I did have friends. <laughs> I was going to say, did you have, did you have friends who shared your interest in music, I had, or was I it did just ha- you with no, your headphones I, on and your maths? No, I did have one or two, and it was very much at the time. And th- and this kind of is indicative of how we, of the image classical music has. I did yes. feel it was like a kind of guilty 
kind of tawdry secret that you mustn't mention to other people because they'll despise you because they were into, you know, the successors of the Floyds and the Purples mm. and the Crimsons, you know. Um, but you weren't it? put off and you still loved No, no, I wasn't. Basketball. I was quite defiant about it, actually. I asked you beforehand what was your favourite piece of music. Mm. It's impossible to pick a favourite, so yeah, let's I mean, say it's among your favourites. Yes. And you went for the Bach Goldberg variations. Yes. Um, the aria. Yes. Um, beautiful piano music played by Glenn Gould. Yes. The thing about Glenn Gould is he was notorious for making lots of noises. He couldn't stop making noises. I know, it's great. You can hear him humming in the background. You put your head right up to this, you can hear him. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, And they went to great lengths to dampen the... You know, they put all sorts of dampeners and mm. curtains and everything around. So he was more or less boxed in while playing the piano. (laughs) And still they couldn't... He still got past them. (laughs) Yes. Which, I mean, um, Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces plays... A pianist who I assume is based on Glenn. Right, right. Sort of having oh, a having a midlife crisis, and his yeah. his thing in that is he can't stop humming, singing, making along it up. Yeah, <laughs> to the music. And it's playing. sort of. I mean, sometimes it can be grating if you hear the odd. Uh, the various conductors and cellists who mm. go, <laughs> you know, when they swoop up, which is off-putting. But uh, there's something endearing about Glenn Gold's kind of inability to stop expressing his enthusiasm. Well, it's, it's like a the... tennis player with their grunts. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I mean, she's a beautiful violinist, but just the grunts <laughs> yeah. every five seconds. It's just... <laughs> I love Philip Glass. Oh, right. And I've played him a lot on my shows. Mm. Uh, I particularly like Philip Glass because it's great music to write to mm-hmm. and would have been perfect music for you to do your homework to. I imagine Back so. In the day. Yes, I, rem- I remember watching Kyana Skatchy when it came out, mm. just wondering who, where was this music from? It felt otherworldly. Yeah, and you know, and that combination of the cinema and the music in that piece it mm. has been so influential on so many the films that have come since. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. So, Armando, you were talking before about growing up in the tenement in Glasgow. How did you get from there to? Uh, to the BBC. Well, um, I loved radio comedy. You know, that's what I gravit. That's why I, I was just a huge admirer of, um, you know, the regular shows like the News Quiz and we had Weekending at the time, which I remember thinking at the time was just the sharpest, <laughs> sharpest wit ever. But looking back, it was dreadful. Um, but, but, it, but it did nurture lots and lots of amazing producing and writing talent. So you... Um, you- you were more excited by the radio rather than the TV comedy? I think so. Maybe. Uh, I mean, there was great stuff on the, on television. You know, there's Python and there was Morecambe and Wise and mm. Bruce's Generation Game and Steptoe and, and so on. But And, and um, Spike Milligan's Q series, which I got, but no one else in my family did. So <laughs> the chances of being able to persuade them to watch it as a, as a unit, very slim. Um but on the radio, there these... I mean, that's, this was when The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came out on mm. the radio. And I, I think I still have my illegally copied off-the-airwaves recordings on cassette, cassette of the first transmission of Hitchhiker's Guide. And you can see... You can hear at 11pm the Radio Tirana from, 
when Radio Albania was under a kind of totalitarian regime, and they would broadcast Radio Tirana to to the west, and the and the and the you could hear the signal at eleven o'clock just coming through on the um, on the short wave and the medium wave thing. So there on thing, but the, the Hitchhiker's Guide for me was the first time I thought, oh, comedy's more than just jokes and sketches. Mm. It, it's about ideas and story. And did you think, I'd like to do that? And, and, and was it possibly that radio felt like an easier way in? I, do I don't know, but I, I certainly that? felt that's what I... I want to do something like that. And I so don't how know, did you, I don't how know did how you, you do it. What was your well, first I, first of all, and, and it was through a series of possibly quite... Um, Machiavellian stages, I thought, who are all these people? They all seem to go to Oxford and Cambridge. Right, mm. I'll apply for Oxford. So, I did, so that you could get so, into radio so comedy. I did, so I did that. and that, Well, no, so, not so I could get into radio comedy, just to get into comedy, <laughs> right? And then I spent my whole undergraduate time in Oxford not doing any comedy. So, however, I did stay on and do... Uh, uh, a PhD, and that's when I did start doing comedy and taking stuff up to the Edinburgh Festival. So were you part um, of the... Um... So the, I was in the Oxford Review. Right. Yeah. With? I, uh, uh, well, David Schneider, who I work a lot with, was in the was in the one just... Uh, the one who had cut, gone just before me. Right. And just after me was, like, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. Right. So. Um, but I remember at the time being up in Edinburgh and just going to see these amazing shows like mm. Theatre to Complicité and so yeah. on and just thinking, oh, I've got to go back and do a Star Trek <laughs> sketch now. I mean, it was very funny, but fundamentally I just thought, I have to rethink now comedy <laughs> and be a little bit more, try, try and little be, try, try and take, take more risks, I suppose. Um, and then, as fate would have it, Radio Scotland were going through a bit of a ref reform and were looking mm. for younger presenters to speak to the youth. Um, because at the time, Radio Scotland was mostly sort of... It, it had an older listenership, shall we say. Um, and so I, and they were looking for some comedy stuff. So I sent them a tape of some of my stuff and they liked it and I went up and chatted to them. And I, I got a job presenting uh, a music show every Wednesday night, along with uh, Eddie Mayer. Uh, and, but my job was also to write comedy. And what I did was I used Radio Scotland as a kind of testing ground, really, because I could, I could get, if I wanted to do a spoof news um, sketch, I could get the news reporter. I could, <laughs> do you know what I mean? If I wanted to do a spoof uh, sports commentary, I could get the sports reporter, because they knew how to do it. I'd just give them the things to say. I'd give them the, 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 the you know, and we'd edit it. I'd get a sports editor to edit it. You know, so I just picked up all the techniques of radio. But I was also allowed to write comedy and direct it and produce it, really, and use sound effects. And so it was a real training ground. And so on the basis of that, I then applied to become a radio producer in London. So it's a series of... I, it makes it sound like I've mapped it all out like that, but it was a, it was a series of kind of... No, well, I mean... My, how can I... Where's the power here? How can I use the power in the room? My career was totally arbitrary. <laughs> I had no planning at all. Um, we're going to chill out. Mm. Um, we're going, you were talking before about your love of Marla, mainly because you got uh, more value for your money yes. in terms of the number of LPs you could, <laughs> yes. you could get under one ticket from the library. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And this is a piece from uh, Mahler's Symphony Number no. 4, the third movement. 
when I was talking to Amando before we started about what might be a piece of music that you would relax to or chill out. It's very much, if you've had a really busy day and you just open the door, dumped your bag, switched the lights on, if you put that on, there's a, you, it's an audible sigh of relief, that piece of music, I find. And you do do that. That's not just something you fantasise about. I audibly kind of sigh or dump the bag uh, on the floor. and I do a bit of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you listen, are you a vinyl snob? Do you have to listen on vinyl or is it just No, I'm not now, no. And um, I also find as you get older, your kind of hearing tends to kind of get a bit compromised anyway. Um, So I I tend to be like a headphones person, Mm. nothing too loud. But... um, I just a good speaker. Also, I just find you know about the house. I don't. I don't need something to make it sound like there the genuinely is a ninety-piece orchestra in the room. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I'm. Not, I don't feel that way inclined. Also, you know, because I grew up with my father playing Italian opera really, really loudly. I mean, so loudly that both the. <laughs> The family below and the family <laughs> above us would bang the floor and the ceiling at roughly the same time. And I knew it drove us slightly crazy, so I'd never want to inflict that on my, my family, really, who, you know, who have other musical tastes. Have, <laughs> do any of your kids listen to... Oh, yes, no, absolutely. And it was a lovely time with Emilio, my eldest, when he, when, for my birthday, he took me to a performance of The Planets. Oh. And he has my uh, vinyl recording of the plans which was one of the first uh, albums i ever bought really he he has that at home so and that was very nice yeah i mean mm. I, I remember my, my dad taking me to um probably would have been a prom at the Albert yeah. hall with, yeah. with the plant suite um, yes i remember taking my dad to um a concert scottish national orchestra were playing and but it was stravinsky and i could see he wasn't really <laughs> he, he was having none of it <laughs> I, I mean, was enjoying it. I thought I mean, it was it's tremendous. Interesting, though, isn't it? You know, that Stravinsky is considered difficult and modern, but it's 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 hundred years old. It's a hundred. Of course, it's hundred years old. And there's elements of jazz and blues and all sorts mm. of folk, and but just the invention and the way he reinvented himself as well mm. throughout his career is amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of modern music is not modern. That's that's the thing. Mm. You know, we, the whole avant-garde kind of atonal, that was the 1920s and 1910s. Yeah, but, you know, people still push against it. Mm. It's interesting at the problems, the BBC always puts on a new piece. Yeah. Which starts it, and they're often quite difficult. Yeah. And and I go to the proms quite a lot, and I just tell myself, oh, I'm watching a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> this is horror film music. Well, I, I sat in on a... There's this group that I'm associated with called the Polo Music Project, and they, they bring classical music into, into sort of inner city schools that maybe not have the resources and so on. And one session they did was they, they asked... They were, they were a quartet, and they asked the kids that, who were about 10 or 11 to improvise a story and they uh, and there was a horror story and and they improvised the music to mm-hmm. it and they put it all together and then they played a piece of Shostakovich string quartet and the kids wrote down what they thought the story was and the two pieces of music were slightly similar in that they lots of dynamic changes and 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 you know lots very expressive and and kept shifting and so on and i thought they've introduced a class mm. of 10 and 11 year olds to Shostakovich, you know, a mid 20th century composer, without them thinking this is hard or this is not for the likes of us or this is going to be difficult or when when does this lesson finish? And and you know, and you, cho- you we've had, you know, Philip Glass, um, Holst was, you know, uh, 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 there's an amazing 
pieces of music that um, I think connect with people that were written in the 20th century. So I, I think we write it off yeah. as a kind of period. And, and, and through <coughs> TV and film, people yeah. listen to a lot of what you could describe as avant-garde classical music. Well, yeah, music. I mean, if you take a Bernard Herrmann score from mm. Psycho or something, very dissonant, very, you know, aggressive, very rhythmic, you know, but, you know, give, given the context, it's amazing. Mm. So, Amanda, you were talking before about how you used working on radio in Scotland as a sort of Petri dish to develop your ideas. Um, yeah. And I first came across your name, and probably most people did, for um, On the Hour. Right. She did yes. on Radio 4, which... How much of that was based on your time at well, Ra- uh, um, Radio Well, there, there was a little bit of that. And also, you know, when I came to London, I heard this show on Capital called The Way It Is, which was their news at 7 o'clock, and it was very on Radio 4. It was like, mm. it's 7 o'clock, this is the way it is. <laughs> And they had, like, a kind of sonorous voice for every category. So it would go, <laughs> the weather, you know, and things like, horse racing, you know. And I just, this is bonkers. But I thought, what if we marry that with a Radio 4 sound? There might be something in it. And um, I went on a training course. One of the first things they do when you join as a producer, they put me on a training course with other researchers, producers, presenters. And we were there for two weeks. And one of the projects was you go into group of people you had to come up with a 10-minute magazine show mm-hmm. and I thought well I don't want to do that I want to do a, you know I want to do comedy so why don't we do a, a fake news mm-hmm. magazine show because we had um, a news reporter there and we had a sports presenter there you know and I got them together and we did this little dummy tape of it, everything absolutely serious <laughs> and and I did a an item, it was Britain's first three-way boxing match. <laughs> where, where, and I thought, what we'll do is we'll interview, we'll, we'll give the people the jokes, but to say in their own words, and then I'll edit it together, as if I've gone out and actually interviewed them and yeah. cut it together as a genuine piece, you know, a genuinely edited piece, just to get the rhythm of it, and then put in jingles <laughs> saying, you know, you know, motorways tonight, <laughs> and things like that. And... Um, uh, we all really enjoyed it, and I thought, well, that was it. But I gave it to the then head of comedy at Radio 4, Jonathan James Moore, the legendary Jonathan mm. James Moore, and he said, "This we must make this. So we did a pilot. I got in contact with Chris Morris, who was on London GLR, it was That's at right, the time, yes. doing spoof kind of news, spoof DJs. Was he doing his DJ, Wayne? Wayne Carr yeah. in the morning. <laughs> um and he would go out and about and do little spoof box pops. And so I just got in touch with him and said, look, I like what you do. Mm. I'm doing this thing. Do you want to meet up? And we did. We turned out to be roughly the same age and had the same interests. And he similarly had gone through into comedy via a local radio background yeah. as opposed to a performing background. He was very musical, um, loved the texture of radio and all that. But, but it also got that idea of the more straight and serious you do it, the funnier Exactly. It is. There's no raised eyebrows at mm. all. No kind of absolutely play it down. And did you did you put together the whole of the, the team? Because that was the yeah. first time people were yes. aware of so I knew Steve Coogan and da- David Schneider. And, um, uh, and I got in touch with people like Patrick Marber, Dune McKeon I'd worked with on, I, as a producer, I produced um, several seasons of um, the Mary Whitehouse Experience on Radio 1. So I'd worked with Dune um, and I got in touch with Steve. I saw him doing impressions mm. and stuff on television and I, I got in touch and said, look, I'm just after a team that can play things for real, can improvise a bit mm. and could do different voices when required. And, and you know. 
and Leon Leon Herring. They had you kept in touch with them. From I had the as days. a as a weekending producer, right? Because you each do a stint. It's like slopping out, it you know. It's your first ground, year, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, you you do eight weeks of weekending, and um, I remember. But you, but you know, I mean, that was an extraordinary lineup you got for that. Yeah. Radio well, we didn't know at the time, other than no. But these got... are all funny people. Let's hope it gels. I think there was a point where. The first time I asked them to slightly improvise around a story, and especially when Steve just, you know, he, he can improvise for hours, mm. I think we all realised we were onto something. We didn't yeah. think it would be a big thing, but we thought it might be a nice kind of um, niche thing that some people might enjoy. Um, and also Chris's amazing talents. How many series did you do? We did two series of it, plus a Christmas special. Um, And then repurposed it for TV. And then pretty soon after the first series. The first series also spawned Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge. Um, Again, because as soon as Steve was Alan, we just knew there was more to this character (laughs) than just presenting sport which was probably the idea in his head as well, Alan's head, mm. which is, I don't want to be yeah. a sports reporter for the rest <laughs> of my life. I have bigger things to do. Um, you know, um, so we knew while we were doing second season, season, tell how American I've become, season, season, season. Uh, Everyone uh, calls them seasons. When yeah. we were approaching the uh, season finale of <laughs> <laughs> season one, <laughs> series one, series one, of on the hour, we knew um, the BBC were interested. So as early as that, it, yeah. you, you were you were moving on. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't quite know what to do professionally in terms of stay at the as a radio producer. And I I took the, you know, I took the leap to be to go freelance or leave the BBC, thinking okay. So when it became this, the day today, yeah, you produced that. Yes. I remember my first interview, my my first sort of meeting with BBC Television Light Entertainment, in which they said, no, someone else will produce it and someone else will direct it. I said, why? And they said, well, you know, you're a radio producer, but we'll get people in to to do it. And I said, said, well, you know, people can... I think they... Yeah, I, I said, you know, people... You know, John Cleese, you know knew what he was doing with Faulty Towers. You put you know, put the creators in touch and he actually said, Yeah, if you look at some of the lighting in some of those Faulty Towers episodes <laughs> The lighting. The lighting. And so I said, Do you know what, BBC? You're not gonna make this. So I took it away from the BBC and started sniffing around independent production yeah. companies to make it instead. So there I was freelance, having left the BBC and then told BBC television, No. I, I it was a slightly kind of I felt that was we, very bold and brave. Was, I, I, was only feel, the, I only feel was that, that now. The arrogance of youth. I think it probably <laughs> was. I just thought we've got to get this right. We can't. Yeah. Um, we can't have, a, you know, a fifty-year-old in a pink sweater, who's drunk every mm. lunchtime at the BBC Club, make well, it in charge of this show. Yeah. Well, it was like you know when Paul and I came to make um, Paul Whitehouse. That is. Yes. Just, just one of my other friends, um, who I also did a, one of these shows with, which you can listen to now as a podcast via Scala Radio. A bit of, bit of salesmanship. Yeah, probably. It's called. Um, it's three sixty. Three sixty broadcasting. Three sixty broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. multi platforming. So, but yeah. So when we came to do the fast show, we we, we went to the all the obvious producers mm. except you. Mm. Uh, well, you were busy with your own stuff. Um, you know, there was John Lloyd, who's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Jeffrey Perkins, yeah. who we'd worked with on Harry's stuff and yeah. had basically taught me everything I knew about mm. making comedy and being a producer. Um, that was about it, really. They 
weren't available or didn't want to do it for whatever reasons. And it was John Lloyd who said, look, you should do it. Yeah. You know the show inside out. Mm. There's no sort of great secret to producing. I mean, I've, I never really got involved in the whole sort of the business side of it, yeah. the contracts and the deals and all that. You, you can, leave that to someone yeah, else. Exactly. But you get as a creative, yeah. uh, and, you know, I, and I think, as I said at the very top of this this programme was... That was why I felt that affinity with you, that we were both creative producers of our own stuff. Mm. And when you're writing something, you're playing it out in your head anyway. Mm. You know how it should look. You know, you, you know, I, as you're watching a, the shot, you, you get a feel for where the funny is. Mm. And I mean, that being said, there are quite a lot of writers who want nothing to do with the actual creative process and having to deal with people. Yeah. No, I know. Say, I know. Here's a script. Go and make it. I... <laughs> Give me the money. I'm going to go and write something else. But I've often found it weird that quite a lot of shows, mostly dramas rather than comedies, operate without the writer there. You know, mm -hmm. the writer hands over the script, and then the director picks up the script and goes off and makes it. And the director, the writer, doesn't really know what's happening <laughs> until he or she sees it going out. And I've always felt that odd. So when I'm doing anything, you know, when they think of it, any TV show or, or any film. I always have the writers around and on set mm. and, you know, if, if the cast want to play with something about, you know, a scene, look at a scene again, there's a writer there to go and talk to. Taking you back to your younger days, mm. I asked beforehand if there was a piece of music that you particularly remember a performance of and how that mm. um, affected you and you chose um, Walton's Balchazar's Feast. And, and what was it that... Had such an effect on So you. I didn't know this piece at all. Mm. And I went to, with some of my friends who I could share the classical music <laughs> secrets with, we went to the, they, they did a prom season at Glasgow as well, right. at, the, um, at the Kelvin Hall. And I remember standing there, so quite near the orchestra, and a massive chorus as well, hearing this piece, which I'd never heard, didn't know anything about, and being absolutely sort of blown away by it. The, the, there's a kind of... There's a bit in the middle of it which... It's quite hedonistic. It's, 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 um, it's them praising gold and bronze and... And, and, uh, and food. Food and stuff <laughs> like that, you know. Um, but Walton goes for it, you know. The... Uh, Evil and depravity is always much more interesting <laughs> to a writer or a composer than... You know, when I spent three years trying to write a thesis about Paradise Lost, and the great bits in Paradise Lost is when Satan speaks. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain sort of heavy metal vibe to it, isn't it? With with the massed choir, it's sort of similar to, the, I suppose, the O Fortuna from... Yes, that's Carmen right. Burana ...and yeah. the Dies Irae from the... From Verdi. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's probably the first Walton that I'd heard as well. So again, you know, straight after the concert, I could rush to the Hillhead Public Library on Byers Road, still there... Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and get your headphones on and, get your headphones and, 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 and shake your head and take out Belshazzar's yeah. feast. But were you able to uh, commune your love of classical music with, uh, you know, contemporaries? <sighs> well, not to a huge amount. I mean, I, I would go with my parents quite mm -hmm. a lot. Um, but I would, it was mostly solitary listening. I would listen after school. I, would, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't go for headphones. I'd... I'd Put the speakers, lie on the floor and put the speakers yeah. on either side of my head. Yes. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, but I remember going to the Iroka and just saying, well, I'm, you know, just giving myself over to the music mm. and imagining in my head this huge sort of epic fantasy fantasy movie. I was very much into, into fantasy at the time. 
sort of Michael Moorcock and Lord of the Rings and stuff. So, uh, and you know that that is the power of this music. To you can make your own stories out of it. Yeah, you, you know, pop music only ever really has one meaning, and that's it. That's, that's, you listen to it, and they just keep saying the same thing all the time. That's a controversial statement, but uh, I, I can see what you mean. And also, well, I should be so lucky. Is there? Yeah, you, you, what you else can't can you read mean? anything outside that? <laughs> yeah. Can you? Or bloody, or blada. I mean, it's, <laughs> okay. it writes itself. There. Well, actually, that's probably one of the reasons why I quite like Bob Dylan in that yeah. you can make up any kind of There's story ambiguity. Lyrics, because it doesn't yes. mean anything, mostly. <laughs> but also, I think the other thing about pop music is it's very much allied to a memory of a time, isn't it? It's yeah. it's, it's associated with a, a period, Um you know, I was, you know, the sound of the seventies and so on. And and being a young person when that music is so yes means so much to you. Um, you know, most of Desert Island Discs people are choosing music from a quite a narrow period of their life. And and whereas there's there's nothing that says that's this is the music of the fifteen nineties <laughs> about classical music. Do you know, it's such, and classical music is such a, a a kind of constraining label because that implies it's just one type of music. But it's yes. like the last six or seven hundred years of music for orchestras, mm. for choruses, and, for and soloists. And technically, the classical period of classical music was just something quite short yes, in the nineteenth exactly, century, I believe. You know. So um, it, it, it's weird, and and so I find it much more, as you say, much more escapist and much more universal. It it. Um, it suggests more than it defines, mm. if you will. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. The Charlie Higson and Friends podcasts were originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a radio station that celebrates classical music in all its shapes and sizes. Why not join me, Charles Nove, for breakfast weekday mornings between 7 and 10? It would be wonderful to have you. Scala Radio broadcasts across the UK on DAB Digital Radio, on your smart speaker, the Scala Radio app, and online at scalaradio.co.uk.